0: So we're going to start, we'll start with Matthew 15, and we're going to be in the very last verse of Matthew 15, and then the first 12 verses of Matthew 16, and then we'll be flipping just a couple pages if you're using a physical Bible to Mark 8, Um, but Matthew 15 verse 39, and after sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, "When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Noah or Jonah, I'm sorry, except the sign of Jonah." So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then you have Mark 8. And you'll notice there are a lot of similarities, but pay attention for some of the, the differences in the details. This is Mark 8, starting in verse 10. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? You have a very fascinating interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees and then Jesus and the apostles here. Both of those passages start with Jesus left some crowd. So Jesus was in one region. He left those crowds, got in a boat, and he crossed the body of water to another region. Okay, So Jesus goes from A to B. He gets to B, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up to him. And why? It doesn't say they come up to him looking for genuine information or genuine interaction. It says they came to him to test him, to try and demand signs of him, to try and trap him. And Jesus absolutely refuses them and he rebukes them for this for their persistent unbelief and then what's it say he left a came to b pharisees come to him trying to trap him and it says and he immediately says no to the pharisees he immediately gets back in the boat with the apostles and they go somewhere new and in the kind of the rush of this it seems like the apostles forgot to grab provisions they didn't expect they'd be leaving again so quickly so now they're in the boat doing some more unexpected traveling and they're freaking out over a lack of provisions And this leads to a conversation where Jesus, I mean, how many times did Jesus say, do you not understand? Do you not perceive? Are your heart's hardened? You have eyes, but you don't see. Like, how are you not getting this? And so that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But I do want to begin with Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees, because we see a very important truth about the heart of Christ in this moment. So what's it say in Mark? It says, Mark 8, 12, it says, He sighed deeply in His Spirit. And I want to look at that, that what we, what translates to side deeply is one word in the original language. It's anastinazo. And it comes from, it. it's two parts together, and that anna is a prefix, and it indicates rising, okay, so it's starting in the lower, it's moving to the upper, but then the main point of that prefix anna is it modifies and it intensifies whatever comes after it. So, if you're happy and then you add Anna in front of it, you're overjoyed. If you're mad and you add Anna in front of it, now you're wrathful, okay? So, Anna, it ratchets up the intensity of the preceding word or the following word, the subsequent word, which in this case is stenazo. And it translates to sigh deeply, but it really means deep grief, intense grief. And that's an important distinction to make as we consider language. Because think about it, when you think of a deep sigh, what emotion, if I, uh, a deep sigh, uh, there's frustration, there's exasperation, there's maybe a little bit of annoyance, right? You're tired, like, I'm tired about this. But that's not what stinazo is. Stenazzo is deep, real, intense grief. And it's grief that comes from, this grief is born from a place of the individual expressing stenazo feels this grief because they know the pressure of what's coming. They know what's ahead. They know what is imminent, what is impending. And because they know what's coming, they feel this deep grief. Now why is that important? Why is that so crucial to this interaction? Well, because if it was a deep sigh of exasperation and frustration, you'd think that maybe it comes before the Pharisees ask him these questions, right? Jesus gets there, he lands on shore, he sees the Pharisees coming. he's like, oh, here we go again. They're going to ask me questions, they're going to miss the point, but that's not what happens. That's that's why stenazzo is so important to understand. Because what happens? The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him these questions. They reveal their persistent unbelief. They reveal their heart. And then Jesus groans in deep grief. He's not annoyed by the Pharisees' unbelief. He's not exasperated by the Pharisees' unbelief. He's not frustrated or ticked off at the Pharisees' unbelief. He is grieved by it. They demand these signs of him. They reveal where their hearts are. And Jesus' response is deep grief. I mean, that Anna, that, that welling up from deep within you till it bubbles out, that stenazo, that overwhelming grief. Why? Because he knows what's coming. Jesus knows the end result for the unbelieving heart. Jesus knows what awaits those who persist in their unbelief. Those who refuse to accept him in this grieves Jesus. And Christian, if you're here, if you're online, if you are a follower of Christ, if you claim, I am a Christian, your heart ought to grieve unbelief. If we look at the unbelieving world around us and grief is not a part of it, knowing what awaits them... We are missing an essential component of the heart of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about those in our family who don't believe, when we talk about our loved one or our friends who don't believe, we get this. We get this grief. I hear Christians say things like, you know, my, my brother, my sister, they don't believe in Jesus, and it breaks my heart. You know, I cry for them, I pray for them regularly. My parent doesn't believe in Jesus, my child doesn't believe in Jesus, my close friend doesn't believe in Jesus, and, and you know, I, I pray for them regularly. But when I hear Christians talk about people they don't like, who don't believe, I hear things like, man, I'd hate to be them on Judgment Day. You know? Whew. They're going to get what's coming to them. I hear Christians say this. I hear Christians say things like, yeah, it's okay. you know? Let, let them be like that now. They'll, they'll get what's coming to them. Yes, they will, and that should devastate you. The unbelieving heart will get what is coming to them, and that should make you grieve. If you believe in the reality of hell for the unbeliever, that should make you grieve. We should not look at the unbelieving world around us and say, "Hmm, wouldn't want to be in their shoes come Judgment Day. They'll find out. Yeah, they they can mock Jesus now, but one day, one day they'll find out. Yes, they will. And that should make you grieve. Jesus was presented with the persistent unbelief of the Pharisees, and he responded with a deep Groan. What does it say? It says he sighed deeply in his spirit. That's the same word. In Hebrew, it's ruach. It's used for both breath and the spirit of God. In the Greek, it's pneuma. It's used for both breath and the spirit of God. So what it is saying in the very essence of who Jesus is, in his spiritual life, in his physical life, he was deeply grieved by the unbelief of the Pharisees. If we... If you, if me, if the individual Christian is not grieved by unbelief, we will not accept personal responsibility for evangelism. We just won't. If I am not grieved by the thought of unbelievers going to hell, it's going to be way easy for me to just shrug off the necessity of telling them about Jesus. But if the church learns to have its heart broken by unbelief, I believe we will see a personal emphasis and responsibility for making the name of Jesus known. Church, Jesus was grieved by unbelief. He sighed deeply in his spirit. It was overwhelming grief knowing what was coming. We know what's coming. May we be a church. May we be people who sigh deeply in our spirit when we interact with unbelief. May this be what burns our heart. Why? Because it burns the heart of Jesus. But like I said, that's not where we're going to spend the bulk of it because, yes, that's essential and, yes, that's crucial, but this interaction with the Pharisees really serves as kind of a jumping-off point for the apostles and for the conversation with the apostles. And so we consider our response to unbelief. We ask, am I as grieved as Jesus is because we ought to be But then the next question, first we see Jesus being grieved by unbelief, and so we ought to ask ourselves, is my heart broken over unbelief in the same way that Jesus' heart is? But then what's the next question? Well, next we see how Jesus responds to his apostles, and we see how Jesus interacts with his apostles, and he gives them a warning. They get in the boat, so he leaves the Pharisees, he leaves the Sadducees, the people trying to trap them, they get in a boat to leave where they just arrived, and the apostles are like, oh shoot, we don't have enough provisions. Our bread basket, bread basket, bread bag, I don't know what they were using, but we don't have enough provisions. We didn't stock up while we were over there. What are we going to do? They're worried about the immediate. They're worried about the temporary, what's right in front of them. And Jesus says to them, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the, Sadduce- the Sadducees. And how do the apostles respond? They say, Yeah, yeah, we know. We're talking about our lack of bread. We, yeah, Jesus, that, that's where we're already talking about. And Jesus goes on to tell them. He says, no. Why are you talking about bread? See, this idea of leaven. Leaven is a very small, if you're a baker, what does leaven do? Does it affect a whole batch of dough, yes or no? Yes. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This small little thing that you may want to discount, but has the capacity to affect and transform a much larger entity. The whole batch of dough is affected by the leavening agent. Jesus says, beware this leaven. And this is something that you see throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate with festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Galatians 5, 7 through 9. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What do we see about the apostles? We see in Scripture, a leaven. Leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven changes everything. The apostles, they're all concerned about the bread. We don't have enough bread. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say, yeah, we, we know that. We're, we're concerned about our lack of bread. It says they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They're talking about no bread. Jesus says, beware leaven. And they go right back to talking about, yeah, we, we have no bread. Why is he bringing this back up? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I mean, Jesus is flabbergasted. He says, why are you discussing this? And he goes on to rebuke them quite strongly. Let's go back to Matthew 16, 9 to 11. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not seek beak about bread? I mean, he says, how how have you failed to understand this? This is an utter rebuke of the apostles. In Mark, it's even harsher. It seems. What does he say in Mark? In Mark, he says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Listen to what he says. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He says, do you not remember? See, he's referencing the feeding of the 5,000. He's referencing the feeding of the 4,000. He's referencing, you've seen this. You know this. You've been exposed to me constantly. How have you already forgotten everything I've taught you? And how? How do the apostles, how do they get to the point where they've missed out? What was Jesus always doing? Jesus was always focused on the eternal. Jesus was always focused on the big picture. Jesus was always focused on taking the conversation deeper. And they missed this. They've been with him. I mean, think about it. They have been living by his side for how long now? And they missed this. Why? because they weren't focused on eternal things. They were preoccupied with the immediate situation right in front of them. We don't have enough bread. Jesus mentioned something to do with bread. He must be talking about what we were talking about. It goes back to the little leaven. Because I'm willing to bet that the apostles didn't set out that morning to forget the lessons about Jesus. I mean, really, hands up. Do you, does anybody think that the apostles that morning were like, hey, you know what we should do today? We should, we should ignore everything we know about Jesus. No, I, I don't think, I, I don't in any way, shape, or form think that was their intention. I don't think that's the average Christian's intention. I don't think any of us wake up on a day saying, you know what, I'm going to forget everything I know about the Lord today. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overlook what he's trying to do. I'm going to overlook what he's trying to tell me. I'm just going to skip past it today. I think that would be fun. I don't think they set out to do this intentionally. I don't think any of us set out to do that intentionally. But here's why a little leaven is such a big deal. Because that distraction is so subtle. And the thoughts that we allow, the things... The apostles have their minds set on the temporary. And so that's how they interpret what Jesus is saying. See, we filter everything that we come across through the lens of where our heart and our mind is set on. Whatever I've set my my mind on, whatever my heart is set on, that's going to be how I filter what happens to me. That's going to be how I interpret what you do, what you say, right? We allow our thoughts, where our heart is set on, that is what influences how we understand and react to the world around us. And it's subtle. I said I don't think the apostles set out to do this. I don't think Christians set out to forget everything. You know what? On Tuesday, you know, go grocery shopping and forget what I know about Jesus and blow up in anger at a stranger or get in a fight with my spouse. Like, I don't think that's on any of our calendars. But we have to understand how subtle things work. And I want to illustrate this in, in past sermons, when we talked about beware the false teachings of the Pharisees, we used an analogy of a little bit of pie, or a whole pie with a little bit of poison. I want to use a different way of driving this point home today. This is going to require your interaction, okay? This is going to require your engagement. As Jesus rebukes them, think about this. All right, everybody ready to participate? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hum something, or I'm going to say something, and I just want you to finish it. All right, whatever thought I begin, I want you to finish it. For example, I'll give, you, I'll give you a hint. This first one, the answer is not Fancy Feast. I am not going to sing to you the commercial jingle for cat food. But I want you to identify the commercial jingle. All right, you ready? Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. Very good. That was fun. Let's do it again da na da na da na 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 what do, what am i doing good job. you guys are excellent somebody was enthusiastic very good all right but up ba i'm loving it McDonald's. mcdonald's golden arches and last one what would you do who for a look at you guys that was excellent all right quick quick question follow up how many of you this morning watched the movie Jaws on TV, heard that theme song, and while watching Jaws on TV saw a commercial for Kit Kat bars, McDonald's, and Klondike bars. Any of you that describe your morning? Hmm. And I'm willing to bet that 30 seconds ago, you were not thinking about the Jaws theme song. But why? Why were you able to get those answers? I mean, you guys didn't hesitate because you knew how to respond to those triggers. And, yeah, that word's gotten made fun of in recent years, but there are very real triggers in life. There are stress triggers. When you lose your job, that's a stress trigger. When you get in a fight with your spouse, that's an anger trigger. When your kid disobeys and does it, you know, kind of snotty, that's that's an anger trigger. When you're struggling to pay the bills and your neighbor goes out and buys a brand-new car, that's an envy trigger, that's a greed trigger. There are very real triggers in life. And you knew how to respond to those triggers that we just went over for junk food, for candy, for ice cream, for a movie, for fast food. You knew how to respond to them because even though you weren't thinking about them, you'd been exposed to them. How many of you, another question, how many of you back when you were 10, you were like, man, with my life, I want to memorize the Jaws theme song. That is my intention. No, of course that's not your intention. None of you, you know, when you're a kindergartner, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be someone who knows the Klondike jingle. That wasn't your intention. You weren't thinking about that 30 seconds ago, but you've been exposed to it over and over and over and over. And it's not conscious. It's just hanging out in the back of your mind. It's lying there dormant. I bet you tomorrow you're not gonna think about the, Well, maybe you'll think about the Jaws theme song tomorrow. More well, than a week, you won't be thinking about the Jaws theme song. But if I walked up to you and started going, da na da da na you would know is it just lies there waiting for that trigger. And so when you get that trigger, oh, I know how to respond to this because it's become a part of me. It's become ingrained in my thought process. And this is why it is so essential that we beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because what we allow ourselves to be exposed to, what we allow ourselves to interact with, it sinks in. And it settles down. And yeah, it may not appear for a year. It may not. Man, I bet there are people here who haven't watched Jaws in the last 10 years. But you knew how to respond to that. This is what happens with false doctrine. This is what happens with inaccurate theology. This is what happens with inappropriate responses to the weight of this life. They lie. They're dormant. And they wait and they wait and then when we get to that trigger moment oh i know how to respond to this because it's been waiting back there in my mind i haven't been thinking about it but i'm ready when it's time this is why you beware the leaven it's not a matter of yeah yeah but i know what's true so you know i just i ignore that part of the podcast Right, I know this, I know this church teaches some false stuff, but I just I don't interact with that stuff. Or if I do, right? Like I know this movie, I know this music, I know this comedian, I, I know this isn't great stuff, but I just I won't let it influence me. Because I know what's right. How many of you set out to be influenced by Kit Kat? None of you. But Kit Kat influenced you. We don't set out to be influenced by false teaching. We don't set out to be influenced by things other than God. But if we're not wary of leaven, we allow it to change the whole batch of dough. This is what Jesus is saying to his apostles. But I don't want to stop there. Because if you think about, okay, well, if a little leaven can leaven the whole dough, and that's a bad example, what happens then if we set our minds on the right things? What happens if I'm inundated with a steady diet of what is good and right, of holy and righteous? Is it possible that maybe that will then influence us when we're faced with these trigger moments? Let's look at Scripture. If you consider a tree, the depth of the roots, if we're not to be rooted in shallow, if we're not to be rooted in false doctrine, if we're not to be rooted in false theology, if we're not to allow these things to influence us, then what's going to cause those roots to go deep so that when the trigger moments come, when that anxiety comes, when that temptation comes, when that greed comes, when that envy comes, is our tree going to fall over or are the roots going to have gone deep enough that we know how to respond? Let's consider Scripture. Romans 12.2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind will transform it. That is how we fight conforming to the world, by seeking transformation of God. 2 Corinthians 10.5 we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Sam, aren't you speaking a little hyperbolically? Like, I mean, you mentioned, okay, I know that movies are, right. it's one movie, dude. Like, come on. Why are you being like that? Yeah, like, okay, it's one comedian, it's one musician. Why are you being so dramatic? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take, thought every, or take every thought captive to obey Christ. We don't get to be half in, half out. That's not what Jesus asks of us. It's not what we ought to give Him. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Where Christ is. If you have been raised with Christ, is a very great logic statement, we're my mathematicians. If A, then B. If you have been raised with Christ then seek the things that are above. It's that simple. There's no wavering. There's no arguing. There's no debating. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Scripture lays out the alternative. If exposing ourselves to the leaven of Pharisees and Sadducees leavens the whole lump, what happens if we expose ourselves to the things that are true, the things that are noble, the things that are pure, that are commendable, that are excellent, that are praiseworthy, What if we set our mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of this earth? Is it possible that maybe when those triggers come, we'll know how to reply? Is it possible? I would say absolutely 100% certainty. And we won't do this perfectly. I'm I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm not saying that you'll never make a mistake. I will make mistakes until the day I die. Okay? We're fallen. I'm not saying we're gonna be perfect, but I'm saying what is your heart set on? What is your mind set on? Look at the way you react to this world. Look at the way you react to the triggers of this world. Your response to the weight, to the struggle, your response to the day-to-day grind sometimes, what does it reveal about where your heart is and where your mind is set? You have to be willing to ask yourself that honestly, and you have to be willing to answer honestly. I want to share a time where I did this terribly. It was my first job after college. I knew everything, right? 22, I'm engaged, I'm living on my own, I'm the man. And I show up in my first job, and I do not get along with my boss in any way, shape, or form. And I do not get along with his boss in any way, shape, or form. And the relationship does not go well because they did not treat me how I thought I deserved to be treated. And sure, it wasn't perfect on either side. I'm not saying I was a total snot. But it came to a head. The two tipping points were I I would not do work on my honeymoon. We got married, we went on our honeymoon, they wanted me to do work, and I just told them no. I did not tell them no graciously. I did not tell them no gently. I was quite arrogant when I told them, no, I'm not going to do work on my honeymoon. And then we got back and they wanted me to work overtime without paying me any different. And I did not tell them no graciously. I did not tell them no gently. I told them no quite arrogantly. And so he called me. My boss called me into his office. And he insulted me as a husband. And he insulted my parents and how they raised me. And I went home that Friday night, ticked off. And I sat in my apartment. I had some guys over. And I told them about how awful my boss was and my words were not seasoned with grace, and my words were not seasoned with kindness, my words were not seasoned with love, and I told them all about my boss, and I asked what I should do, and they gave me terrible advice. And I took that terrible advice, and I did the bare minimum for the rest of my time there. And that is humiliating. That is one of the things I am most embarrassed about when I consider my adult life. I mean, I did the absolute bare minimum, to not get like thrown out that front door. Because my response was, oh, that's how you're gonna treat me? <laughs> Wait till you see how little I can do for you. Where in the world does that reflect a mindset on things above? Oh, that's what you're gonna do to me? All right, you'll get yours. Oh, don't you worry. I know how to react now. I mean, that's, that's just ugly. That is absolute conformity to the world. There's not an ounce of transformation of my mind in that moment. And I've since repented, and I sent an email apologizing. But that was, I mean, goodness. There wasn't a single thing about my response that reflected anything true or excellent or praiseworthy or honorable or commendable. I responded to a trigger of stress and anger with the absolute worst possible response. Because I allowed just a little bit of leaven. I allowed the idea of, wait, things are about you. The enemy said, how dare they treat you that way? How dare, don't they know who you are? How dare they treat you like that? And I allowed a little bit of leaven from my friends to change everything. And I was absolutely incorrect in every way, shape, and form. Scripture says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of the Lord. You couldn't at all say that I worked for the glory of the Lord after that. It says, don't work as unto men, work as unto God. I ignored that verse entirely because I allowed a little bit of leaven. I allowed a notion from the enemy that I was better than that, that I deserve more than that, that things are about me, how dare they treat me this way. Yeah, that's right. and that's one example where I ignored everything that I am told to live by because it was about me and it was about how I felt and how I wanted to respond Christians we don't get that option that's not presented to us think of this year this has been a stressful year we've said this time and time again There's been social stress, there's been economic stress, there's been political stress, there's been class stress. I mean, this has been a stressful year. Think of how you have responded to the person on the exact opposite of every issue from you. The person who you disagree with most, the way you talk about them. They might not even be in the room. Man, it might be even somebody you don't even know personally. But when you talk about that person who you disagree with most, Would someone listening say, Wow, that was was excellent and praiseworthy and commendable and honorable and loving. Man, the way that you reacted to that stressful situation, that showed me that your mind is set on heaven. Has that been true of the American church this year? Has that been true of you and I this year? Has our response to these triggers this year, has it revealed hearts set on things that are above or has it revealed hearts set on things of this earth? The Bible is very clear on where our heart is to be set. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Jesus rebuked the apostles firmly, because they missed this. Do you not understand? How do you not yet perceive? Do you have eyes without seeing? Do you have ears without hearing? Why in the world are you still talking about bread? Jesus said to the apostles, is it possible that the church needs to realize that this is being said of us? When we allow our mind to be set on things of this earth and then allow our responses to be dictated by that. This had to have been a harsh conversation for the apostles in that boat. Sometimes we need a harsh conversation to wake us up to the things we allow ourselves to forget. Not intentionally forget, not intentionally abandon. But we let our guard down And then when that trigger happens, when that Klondike Bar song starts, we know how to reply. Please, let our hearts be set on things that are above. Let our minds be set on things that are above. So that when the world looks at this body of believers, when the world looks at the community Bible church that is all of you, they see hearts and minds that are set on the things of Christ. Please. This is, a, this is a constant prayer in my own life. And so this week, I want to challenge you. We're going to up the ante just a little bit. It's only 17 verses, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. So I want you to read it twice every day. Normally I say read it once a day. I want you to read this passage twice a day. I want you to read these verses at the start of your day. And the prayer is simple. Lord, in that passage, in Colossians 3, 1-17, you'll see the phrase, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Do everything. Take every thought captive. So read Colossians 3, 1-17 to start your day. And the prayer is simple. Lord, teach me to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then I want you to read Colossians 3, 1-17 at the end of your day. And I want you to look back. And I want you to say, okay, what did my thoughts, what did my actions, what did my words reflect? Where was my heart set today? Where was my mind set today? Was it set on things that are above? Or do I need to be asked by Jesus, have I already forgotten? Do I not perceive? Do I not understand? Please, let's be a church set on things above. Join me in prayer. Lord... You are holy. You are holy, holy, holy. The perfection of holiness. The standard of holiness. Your word says that we are to be holy as you are holy. And Lord, forgive us for when we do not do this. Protect us from any arrogance to think that we'll do this perfectly. Don't let us fall into the pride of thinking that we're doing this better than others. But let this be the standard to which we attain and the standard to which we hold ourselves. Let us wake up and approach our day with a heart set on being holy because you are holy. Teach us what that means to set our mind on things above. Whatever is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellences, if there is anything worthy of praise, Lord, teach us to think about these things so that when the enemy tries to come at us with greed, when the enemy tries to come at us with envy, with lust, with temptation, with malice, with anger, with apathy, let us know how to respond because we have set our mind on you. Father, please transform our lives. Remake me. Please, Lord, let this be a body of people who look like Jesus. Do what only you can do. We give it all to you. Teach us what it means to do everything for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's in that name that we pray. Amen.